Hello and welcome to the Full of Beans podcast, hosted by myself, Hannah Hickenbotham. Throughout these podcast episodes, we will speak to a range of individuals about their experience of eating disorders with the aim of increasing awareness and understanding whilst reducing stigma and isolation. Please note that the topics discussed in this podcast may be triggering for some individuals, so tread lightly, check in with yourself and reflect on these conversations. Today I'm joined by Elle Kelly. Elle is a registered sport, eating disorder and disordered eating dietitian. Elle works with clients with eating disorders and disordered eating to improve their relationship with food and has excellent knowledge on this specifically in the athletic community. Elle joins us today to share her research on eating disorders and disordered eating in the athletic population and explore how this can be navigated and supported. Hello Elle. Hello, thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Honestly, I'm I'm so looking forward to this episode and I've just knocked my microphone over as I'm trying to pick up my <laughs> coffee. So that's clearly not going to happen. Um, yeah, I'm so excited. I think this um, episode I've, you know, reading your dissertation was fascinating. And actually, I think when this is released, it's going to be such good timing for people because navigating these sorts of thoughts and conversations are so prominent at this time of year. It's such a hard time, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> um, it's like I always think if Christmas wasn't bad enough for somebody mm-hmm. struggling with their relationship with food, like then comes January. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's so difficult for sure. Yeah, and I think you're so right. You've got it's almost another layer of um difficulty because you have all the pressures of Christmas and you know mm. being happy going to all the social events doing this doing that eating all the food and then it's like okay now you've done all of that you've got to do the opposite um gotta stop all that food that you've been eating you're not allowed that anymore and you've got to get to the gym and all of this it's it's a minefield to be honest um it's I kind of feel like it's almost a what's the word like uh, it's it's almost like a binge restrict cycle on a yeah, cultural level absolutely because it's like pr- the promotion of all of these foods and like eating for the sake of you know it's it being christmas and i want to preface by saying you know eating for the sake of just eating is totally yeah. normal and it's part of normal yeah. eating and overeating is totally part of normal eating as well um but i think that if we kind of take a step back and think about it december is like food is so kind of hyped up and encouraged and then come January it's like diet culture kind of takes centre stage again mm-hmm. and I think I had a, a couple of conversations like this with clients in the last few weeks I can't think and please do if you think of any other foods but in my head the only foods that aren't available at Christmas um, or at any other time of the year not Christmas are mince pies and like Christmas pudding I feel like everything else is available at any other time of the year. Yeah. Christmas dinner to me, and I'm sure I'll get some hate for this. Christmas dinner to me is just like a roast dinner. It is. <laughs> yeah. I was literally <laughs> saying this to my mum yesterday. It's a glorified it's just, roast. I know. It's just a roast dinner. And um, I think like chocolate, you know, widely available at Christmas, also more than accessible throughout any yeah. other period in the year. So it's, it, is, it is interesting, I think on a cultural level how we mm-hmm. how we act around the season for sure yeah yeah I mean I know that there's um the religious aspects but I do think that most of those have been kind of most people don't do Christmas now for the for the religious aspects particularly you know like you said the the Christmas dinner and the chocolate and stuff but it is almost like it's been set up to 
you know make you just buy everything because you're buying all of that stuff for Christmas you've got to feel like you're having it all and January comes okay now you've got to buy all the diet products um, it's like get it so, get it all out of the house in January isn't yeah it? it's almost yeah. like forecasting throughout December it's like we'll eat it all now because come January we're starting fresh um, yeah and it's, it's absolutely everywhere. yeah I remember um I always distinctly remember when I was a child um, going into, in my house, we have a utility room and going in there, like after my mum had done the Christmas shop, I think it would be jam packed full of, you know, all the kind of Christmas picky, nibbly things. Um, and w like, I, I don't think as a family, we even really enjoyed it because then there was that pressure. It's got to be gone by the time we go back to work or school or whatever. Mm. Um, and you just get so sick of like eating I, I i personally did like i was just so desperate for like a normal meal and i can imagine for people that have binge eating disorder or bulimia those sorts of environments actually are so difficult to navigate because one you've got all that food that would be a massive trigger for for binging but also you know i think it's interesting um most of the year restriction is kind of glorified I would say but at Christmas binging is massively glorified and normalized and the language that people use around sort of the way that they consume food I can imagine is so difficult to navigate for for people that kind of experience that um as a compensatory behavior absolutely and like you said it's it's so like normalized and almost I think some people are almost justifying their own behaviors around that Christmas mm. time by then kind of saying what they, they believe around the food at Christmas to other people. And there's that pressure then to kind of, I suppose, engage in those behaviors. Mm. Um, but I think Christmas can be good and bad in, in many ways. Yeah, we people. are just like, Christmas is awful. <laughs> I know, yeah. Um, <laughs> like, it, it, it does almost give us an opportunity, especially for people with binge eating disorder, to become quite, like, habituated to these foods. Like, this mm. food is everywhere. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's a bit of a, a push to the deep end. Um, but mm. it is, I suppose, just getting to that point where this this is becoming, like, a bit more normal, the fact that it is everywhere. And there are so many occasions. Um, I don't think that anxiety and the overwhelm going into this season is helpful because I think um we then struggle to kind of like see it for what it is and our mm. brain takes us off in it in a tangent but um I think as part of I suppose the, the work that I do with clients who struggle with binge eating is very much um using the concept of systematic habituation you know the more we expose ourselves to something the more mm. neutral that will eventually become and yeah. ideally I'd like to work with that with clients before Christmas <laughs> so that they feel better around Christmas and around these foods at Christmas but we can look at Christmas as a way to to experience that and to experiment mm. with that um so yeah it's it's difficult but I definitely think it gives opportunities and I think Christmas is the epitome of food not being fuel food being so mm. much more than fuel so true food being like for me I haven't been home to Ireland for the last two years because of COVID and I am looking forward to nothing more than having like a Bailey's hot chocolate with my dad on the sofa when I do <laughs> get home and you know walking through Dublin city and getting whatever kind of festivities and festive food that is around and that is not eating because you're hungry that's eating because you know it's tradition it's memories mm. it's so much more than just you know food being cool.
Yeah, I think you're so right. And I really like that kind of switched um, kind of narrative on it rather than seeing it as, you know, a really tough time that's going to be really difficult to navigate, actually taking it as a time to challenge yourself, a time to sort of expose yourself to different things um, and, you know, not feeling like you have to do it all at once. You know, nobody's expecting you to you know be totally fine by the time that Christmas rolls around. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, maybe using this, these uncomfortable feelings and this Christmas might be uncomfortable and that's not maybe not what you want from Christmas is forever. But by making yourself uncomfortable this year, next year could be so much better. Um, and I totally agree, you know, Christmas is, and and food in general is so much more than just the the eating. Um, I actually, sadly, yesterday was at um, a friend's birthday party, um, and they kind of had like a plowman's lunch, and it was very like you know help yourself. But I ju- I just didn't feel like I could do it, and I was I. I, I had my lunch and then I went um, and they were all kind of like picking a bits and then handing around chocolates and they had cake and I couldn't have any of it. I just, I couldn't put myself and I thought, you know, this, I don't, I'm, I'm not bothered by the cake. I'm bothered by getting involved and being engaged. Yeah. And, and that's the really important thing and being like, oh, I'm so happy that I'm here for my friend's birthday. Not, oh my God, I really hope they don't ask me if I want to, to have a slice of cake or something. Yeah. Um so it is, it's about being connected and, and enjoying yourself and the food being an element of it rather than like the focus all the time. Yeah, because, you know, it's not about the food. These mm-hmm. social occasions around Christmas, Christmas Day itself, as much as the food does kind of take center stage, it's not the focus. It's, yeah. you know, being with family, being with people who you love. And um, I think that when it comes to social occasions when we have an eating disorder or a challenging relationship with food there's kind of angst and fear of of judgment of what you're eating what other people think you're eating and the reality is that you know people don't don't actually care nobody's looking at what you're eating um it might be you know if family are it's probably from a place of love and concern but the reality is that 90 percent of the time nobody's actually looking at what anybody's eating and I think Mm -hmm. when we have an eating disorder or a challenging relationship with food we very much judge ourselves and then it's like this belief that everyone's kind of judging everything but it's but it's not um and yeah I think that's just such a good example that that you Mm -hmm. shared there that it's not the food you're you're conscious of missing out on it's being involved yeah Absolutely. And I think that is one thing that I have absolutely realised is that actually no one gives a crap what's on your plate. They are so much more focused on what's on theirs and enjoying it themselves. Um, And yeah, so we were going to talk about kind of disordered eating and eating disorders and you touched a little bit on it there. I guess to start with, um, what is the difference? You know, I think there's such a fine line between them and I think people often get quite sort of you know is it disordered eating is it an eating disorder um so what do you think what's your opinion on what the difference is i would like commonly explain eating behaviors as a spectrum so Mm. on one end we have you know normative eating which there's probably a question mark over that because normal for everybody is is different um but we've got normal eating on one end and then at the other we have what we consider a clinical eating disorder so an eating disorder that's been diagnosed using the dsm-5 criteria um but i think in the middle we have what we would consider disordered eating and i think the sad reality is at the minute i feel like a lot of disordered eating behaviors are, are pretty normal. Um, mm. But what we see when we when we 
use the kind of spectrum analogy is we see that people are edging more towards the clinical eating disorder side of things and we know that actually somebody who engages in disordered eating behavior is actually at an increased risk of developing an eating disorder than somebody who's an intuitive eater or more normal eater um so i do want to say that you, you don't have to have a clinical eating disorder a diagnosed eating disorder or an eating disorder that meets all the criteria of the dsm-5 which is what we use to, to diagnose clinical eating disorders like you don't have to be at that point to struggle with your relationship with food and actually reaching out at an earlier point is going to give you an even better kind of chance at changing your relationship with food. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a really nice explanation. Um, but I think it is so, so hard, um, particularly for individuals, like you say, that that maybe don't meet the full diagnosis diagnostic criteria within the DSM-5. But yeah, I think it's really hard to navigate because I've always thought, well, I, I do think like anybody that is um, sort of, it's having an impact on their life and they find it challenging, they find it difficult to navigate, obviously completely deserving of support and stuff. Um, but I think that where the interest for me lies is that a lot of people I like, you know, when I'm with them, I think hmm, that's a bit disordered, but they're very happy in that. And I think that's where I find it really hard to draw the line in, in terms of um, that's just kind of their way. And if they're content with that, you know, is that an issue that needs like approaching and are they genuinely happy or is it just kind of what they know as their norm I think there's so many questions around it and I think only you it's so individualized that's the that's the kind of problem yeah it is so individualized and I think you made a really good point there that it's it's actually figuring out is this having an impact on somebody's mm -hmm. life because even if it is the way that you've grown up that that doesn't mean that it's completely right either if it is limiting you in some ways so it's really about I suppose working out what this is and how it is serving somebody and if it's you know not impacting their life then great I think everybody should have the freedom to do what they want mm, with food yeah. you know it's not it's not anyone else's opinion and in reality what somebody else does with food shouldn't impact what what we do so if somebody is eating in a disordered way fine mm. that if that works for them that works for them um but i think it's yeah it's really about kind of exploring how does this impact somebody um and is this something that they actually want to change mm -hmm. um and is it something that they feel does hold them back from living life to the fullest and being able to you know engage in social events because like we've just been talking about food is not just fuel and you mm. know eating to keep your body alive is is not kind of it's surviving but you're not exactly thriving and <laughs> because yeah. there's so much more to life than, than just kind of keeping yourself alive with food and um, and I think food is kind of the center of quite a lot of experiences in life celebrations traditions memories and if your relationship with food is holding you back from that then that's an issue in my eyes <laughs> yeah that's something that we we definitely want to see somebody getting support for yeah absolutely i think that's the key thing isn't it it's the impact that it's having on you personally um and if you're able to to navigate situations and feel engaged and enjoy yourself then yeah pretty it's pretty damn good um but if not i think where is another thing that interests me is sort of the 
um supporting maybe athletic community particularly in the gym um and athletes i think disordered eating and eating disorders are yeah i mean i i go to the gym um the gym is a place i love to go and i just look around and i think oh my god like it's just it's normal to for the disordered eating patterns um you know whether you're bulking whether you're cutting whether you're you know just generally have a disordered relationship with food because of the environment um and again that's another one where i'm like you know where where do we draw the line between what is okay for somebody and then what's disordered i think it's so prevalent yeah i think it's such a common one that we see people do this like in the name of health <laughs> like achieving a certain body type and eating yeah. a certain way in this like like to, to support this idea that they're, they're going to be healthy and they're supporting themselves but there is a point where chasing that health status or being mm -hmm. fit is actually counterproductive and that's not healthy either mentally or physically and like the definite the definition of health is not just about you know your weight and the food you're having it's also about your environment that you're living in how you are mentally like there's so much more of that so even if you are eating enough to support you know your lifestyle and you're physically healthy if your relationship with food is holding you back that's not healthy mm. so yeah. it's really yeah definitely really like multi-factorial for that mm. for sure yeah yeah and i know that you did your dissertation looking at sort of disordered eating and eating disorders in athletes why do you think that it's so much more common uh you know disordered eating and stuff in sort of the the athletic population compared to maybe the general population so i think what's really interesting is that traditionally we've seen eating disorders and disordered eating being higher in the athletic population than in the normal population and in 2004 there was a really large scale study done and they found that 20 percent of athletes um that were female actually met the criteria for an eating disorder in contrast wow. to nine percent of the normal population so the control group wow but what was really interesting what i found really interesting about this study was the same publishers actually did a study 10 years prior to this and they found that there was an 18% prevalence of um, females who would meet the criteria for an eating disorder in that athletic group. So the difference between 20 and 18 is it's still a, like a growth over a 10 year period, but it's not as large as what they actually saw in the um, the control groups so of the normal population mm. groups. So that went from being five to 9% in a 10 year period. Oh, wow. So over the years, we have actually seen that there is although a higher prevalence of eating disorders within the athletic group, the normal population, the prevalence is, is rising and it's almost becoming kind of level, if you will. Um, mm. And when I was actually doing my dissertation, a lot of the more recent studies, so like the 2020 studies, the 2019 studies, um, it's definitely showing that there's like less of a difference in right. both groups. So it's it's really really interesting and going back to kind of your question on why that is i think there's so many different reasons and i think we know that it can definitely be linked to the pressure to obtain a certain physique in some sports you know in some sports there's a belief that being um, lighter or leaner is faster or that leaner is stronger but again we know that evidence shows that when a leaner physique or a lower bmi is achieved through disordered eating behaviors it actually leads to a decline in performance Mm -hmm. reduced velocity reduced power output reduced kind of running time so 
it's it's actually counterproductive. Um, and we also know that like obviously eating disorders can affect absolutely everybody, but there's no denying that there is a certain kind of personality types that can be linked mm-hmm. with having an eating disorder. Um, and those personality traits, I would argue, are almost kind of required to be an athlete, um, a mm-hmm. successful athlete, you know, having high self-expectations, having low self-esteem, being tolerant of discomfort, being quite achievement orientated. They're all kind of what we see is increasing someone's kind of predisposition to an eating disorder, but also somewhat required to be a successful athlete. Mm. So yeah. those personality types definitely have a have a role to play. Yeah, absolutely. I, and I guess that's a, a really key thing to note in terms of you know coaches or people that are working with athletes in terms of being so aware that you know if somebody is an athlete they're going to be a high achiever they're probably going to be a perfectionist they're going to have a lot of expectations put on them there's that's a really high pressure environment and you know leaning into certain behaviors or whatever to to help um you know either make weight or you know I, I don't know fit a certain body type that's needed um I can imagine that that would be quite easy to slip into but equally on the flip side you know we are so aware of that so as easy as it is to slip into that it could be as easy to prevent by having the appropriate support for making it an environment where mental health is openly spoken about and people can share rather than it being something that is a weakness and is going to you know because I think it would be so easy to be like, oh, no, I'm, I've got to be a good athlete. Therefore, I can't talk about this sort of thing. Yeah, but I, but I do think it is actually that the similarities in these like personality traits and then obviously the requirements of being an athlete. I would argue that it's, it, it does make it harder to actually identify the symptoms because it's like, mm-hmm. is this person just really kind of committed to sport and showing up yeah. for training and doing extra kind of training sessions or is this compensating for eating? Is this kind mm-hmm. of exercise addiction? Is this compulsion? Like it's, it's, yeah. it, it does actually make it hard to really identify what what is disordered here and what is somebody just trying to make it in their sport that they're really passionate about. Mm. And I suppose as well, another thing that makes that really difficult, um, talk a lot about like identity and eating disorders and, you know, without your eating disorder, what will you be? Mm-hmm. An athlete their sport that does mean so much to them and you know I recently have been trying to like bring other hobbies into my life so that exercise isn't the only thing I'm doing but if you are a pro you know a professional athlete or really high performing athlete and your you know day-to-day involves a lot of that uh, that sport because that's what you have to do to train if you did take that away that would be a massive hole in your life and that would be your identity so yeah the kind of entanglement must be so difficult to unravel in terms of is this something that's sort of disordered or is this just kind of the way that it is yeah and I think that also begs the question of like why is somebody involved in sport like Mm. where did that come from what is this kind of what is what are their personal goals out of it and it was very interesting a study done last year actually found that the identified reason for sports participation among some athletes was actually linked with eating disorder behavior which kind of poses the question is their involvement in sports a way to control and maintain an eating disorder Mm. a way to kind of manage it um yeah and this is a question I often kind of talk to clients about when they say to me you know 
exercise actually really helps me mentally and it clears my head and it gives me like you know kind of stability and I I completely agree with that I think exercise can be 100% part of you can like exercise can be a really great coping mechanism for sure but there's a really fine line when you have an eating disorder and I always Mm -hmm. say to clients does it make you feel better mentally because it justifies what you eat for the rest of the day or because you feel better for having like eaten xyz or does it genuinely clear yeah. space in your hands this is such a fine line and I don't know the yeah. answer in figuring that yeah. out I think that takes so much time to really kind of dissect your relationship with exercise and um, but yeah it's so so complex and so interesting I think my thought around that has always been um because I think it's really difficult to know if ex- like doing the exercise is helping you because I think it can make you feel better and simultaneously be a compensatory behavior or whatever. I've always tried to think of it as, okay, rather than like what the exercise gives me, what happens if we can't exercise? Because somebody that didn't have a dysfunctional relationship with exercise would be able to go a day without kind of going to the gym and they'd be, or, you know, doing whatever exercise um, and they'd be fine and they'd be able to be fully engaged. But when that thing is then taken away, if that's then an issue, um, yeah. you know, if that's something that causes you distress, yeah, I'd say that's kind of a really good identifier for when exercises maybe not being used in the best way. There's such a good way to look at it. And I think like what you said there, even if somebody doesn't have a dysfunctional relationship with exercise, there's, there's also a bit of a fine line. You know, there's some days where somebody mm. might wake up and think, I feel really tired, but on one hand, I know that if I go to the gym or do my class or mm-hmm. do a training session, whatever it might be, I will like wake up, I'll be given energy and I'll, I'll have a great day. But then there's again a fine line between actually, am I tired? <laughs> and mm-hmm. is doing a session just going to make me worse? Is it going to put me in a bad mood? Like I've had, you know, sessions where I've thought I'll feel better after doing it and ended up walking out because it's just making my mm. mood worse, the fact that I can't get into yeah. it. So, you know, it, it's really about, I think, in a way tuning into your body and I think that's so hard to do when you have an eating disorder because there's such disconnects with your body it's really so driven by your head and rather than kind of the rest of your body sensations that can be really hard to tune into and to identify um but it's really about kind of being able to learn your body and what's right for you and again not being influenced by then the the external pressures that are there to, to exercise yeah and I guess with that that kind of going back to what we were talking about athletes that is a really difficult thing to navigate because if you're you know training for a competition or a game or, or something like that that is exhausting I, I used to um compete for powerlifting and um that like when you'd be doing the peak which is like um a block just before you compete and you kind of the weights are going really heavy you're lifting a lot of heavy stuff and you are absolutely exhausted and you're turning up to a training session thinking i cannot do this but it's it's that preparation for the competition and so that's another thing to that's so difficult to navigate because in somebody that's not an athlete you could identify like a a ritualistic and rigid training schedule that they have to stick to but in with an athlete you can't identify that because they're provided a training schedule that they have to work towards into it in order to achieve their goals or to to compete so that's another thing it's kind of taken out of their hands you know when they exercise and what they do 
that funny enough, I think that kind of goes back to what we were talking about before we started recording about that intrinsic and external motivation Mm -hmm. and really thinking like, why am I doing this? Because it's, it's completely understandable that for certain things we we go through, it's not going to be easy. And to achieve certain goals, we do have to kind of grit a little bit and and Mm -hmm. go through certain things that we don't necessarily want to do and things are going to be uncomfortable and having to go through that discomfort to to get to a certain place but I really think it's then about evaluating why am I doing this am I doing this because my parents really want me to be a swimmer or am I doing this Mm. because I really want to I really want to achieve that and I eventually want to then work in sports for the rest of my life or whatever it might be so I think it's really about kind of thinking where is this motivation and is this pressure internal or external and Mm. um yeah really identifying the motivation behind it yeah and that in itself makes it so hard doesn't it when you've got that external pressure to do things whether that's from your parents or from your team or from your coach or whatever I think for somebody with an eating disorder that pressure maybe from the eating disorder to do certain things is bad enough when it's actually real saying it kind of like a real person saying it to your face um and all all the kind of like you know no excuses keep pushing no days off all of that kind of thing like there's there's so there's literally so much that when you think about it is so negative but I I also don't want to say that you know all athletic communities are that negative I think it's really important to highlight you know there is a purpose of the sort of um culture and things like that but I think just creating that awareness that it it can be quite a dangerous environment absolutely it's so I suppose it's so hard to really as I said fully identify is this a symptom or is this somebody just wanting to be like good in their game and I think we we know that kind of eating disorders don't discriminate but there is certain associations of certain eating behaviors within certain sports and that is kind of seen as the norm I suppose mm-hmm. um and I think it, it's it's quite interesting to note that actually there's a higher incidence of eating disorders within um the diabetic population and I think mm. this kind of begs the question when you compare it to athletes and kind of the normal population it is kind of considered normal that an athlete will be conscious of their food intake and will be conscious of their exercise output and all of these things. And going back to the diabetic population, you know, people who have diabetes actually do have to be aware of carbohydrate contents and mm-hmm. um, like how they have to manage their insulin and being really aware and reading labels of things. And I almost question, you know, does that constant exposure to these things, having to check these things lead to then that obsession and mm-hmm like promote the reality is it's it's far from normal eating behaviors it is disorders yeah. so it is just pushing you closer to that I suppose, eating disorder point on that spectrum I think it's actually quite like as you said with it being normalized in certain sports and kind of the culture that goes on I, I, I would definitely want to bring attention to like weight class sports like maybe boxing and mm-hmm. um, where it's quite typical for somebody to crash diet or use diuretics or use laxatives in the lead up to um, a weigh-in and then it's almost quite tradition to see that there's binging most likely out of pure hunger but also that kind of black and white mindset in the week's 
throughout like a crash diet and this is all I think that black and white mindset very much interlinks with quite a lot of eating disorders and without sounding too stereotypical um you know when we think of ballet or dancing anorexia and bulimia are very common within those sports um and this is a lot I think related to body ideals within Mm -hmm. sports and that culture um and again a very recent study last year found that around 73 percent of athletes across different sports actually felt pressure by their sports to alter their physical their physical appearance to conform to gender and physique ideals with 15 percent of them then consequentially engaging in disordered eating behaviors so that side of the culture is really something I think to we have to reevaluate because as I said earlier there's this myth that leaner is faster or you know smaller is quicker whatever it might be and the reality is it's it's not it's not always true yeah I suppose it's it's thinking about you know being the top of your game but at what cost I think it links back to that support element because actually if you're putting the pressure on somebody to you, you, weight weight cutting I think is a, such a great example of when disordered eating can totally arise and it's interesting just going back to what I was saying about um powerlifting um yeah you know, this is a really sad sort of reality but I don't think I met um obviously I was like a female powerlifter so I I engaged a lot more with female powerlifters than male powerlifters um so I, I couldn't say for the males but um I would say eight out of ten of you know with power um female powers that lifters that I've met were had had an eating disorder and were then powerlifting and at the time I thought how great you know we're empowering ourselves we're getting strong we're doing all this and then I thought and then now looking back on it I'm like wow we just kind of went from having an eating disorder to putting ourselves you know on a very rigid exercise plan a very rigid diet plan all wanting to be in the weight category below where we were so we had to cut weight before the competition um and it was just it was just an eating disorder in that kind of a um a glorified form and in an acceptable form um and I think that you know has the potential in a lot of um a lot of sports particularly you know think about boxing um I remember reading that um a guy was you know self-induced vomiting because um he was so worried about making weight and rather Mm -hmm. than getting support he was just kind of let go because he was engaging in those behaviors and I think it you know hopefully that's not how it always is but when you've got that pressure to be a certain way in order to be the top of your game I think people do turn to you know very damaging behaviors and like I said just a second ago like at what cost because you lose yourself and you like you were saying earlier about the intrinsic motivation I mean there can't be any when you're having to put yourself through things like that in order to be good at your sport and then going back to what you said like what happened when you cut sport out of your life you're left Mm -hmm. with these behaviors don't just go away with it yeah (laughs) you're you're unfortunately left with that kind of concern around your weight the whole time your activity levels your intake and those compensatory behaviors, they, they become a coping mechanism. So mm. that, you know, coping mechanism will, will merge and there'll be other uses for that. So it's, yeah, it's so, it's so complex. And the culture of sport, like you said, I think can be a little bit passive 
towards it. And again, that's really, that's not me bashing the culture of sport. I think sport in itself is one of the most amazing things that we have, but it is, it is really hard to actually identify, you know, what is an issue versus, versus not. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the, that's the line I'm finding really hard to tread in this conversation is that sport is, you know, it has such great elements in terms of its it's massively, you know, the community and the enjoyment that people get from it and things like that. And it can be so, so brilliant. Um, do you think that sort of the more maybe weight dependent and, and sports that have a certain physique that eating disorders and disordered eating are more prevalent than I'm trying to think of a sport when we say like non-weight dependent sports, are we talking about things maybe like football? And that sort of thing. And then when we talk about weight dependent, things like boxing and, and, and ballet and things like that. Yeah. So I think lean sports are typically the aesthetic sports. So okay. leanness is maybe encouraged purely for aesthetic reasons, like boxing, um, no, sorry, like bodybuilding or yeah. gymnastics. Um, but not all lean sports then rely on aesthetic appearance as the determinant of success. However, they mm. do place an emphasis on a lean physique. Um, and enforce kind of greater pressure on athletes to maintain that set physique. So examples of that would be maybe athletics, swimming, cycling, figure skating. Um, and then the weight descent, the weight dependent sports often kind of come into that category too sometimes. And sports like boxing, as you said, or wrestling will typically have weight classes, powerlifting again. And that's purely to regulate competition and, and make it as fair as possible. But as you mm-hmm. said, it is sometimes putting like an emphasis on on numbers and like how heavy can I lift at my lightest body weight almost yes trying to give yourself an advantage it's really common for people to compete um, and to typically be kind of training at a weight class that's above what they then want to compete at um Mm -hmm. so it's it then takes a lot of the, the manipulation like the water loading and cutting and depletion and laxatives and diuretics all of that kind of stuff but um then like the non-lean sports and non-weight dependent sports are typically the technical ones like golf um, or ball sports like, yeah, basketball. And I'm sure quite unsurprisingly, sports where leanness is encouraged, especially purely for aesthetic reasons, is associated with an increased risk of developing an eating disorder. And when we classify lean and non-lean sports, lean sports are associated with a higher prevalence of disordered eating behaviours and eating disorders. And in the the research study I, I did do five out of six studies concluded that eating disorders and disordered eating behaviors were higher in athletes within lean sports mm. than non-lean um, but I suppose when it comes to the type of eating disorders within each sport as I said earlier there's sometimes a bit of a culture and maybe like binging is more common in one and anorexia and bulimia and restrictive eating might be more common in another but there's no solid evidence to say that X sport leads to X eating disorder or eating behavior, but there are associations we've seen. So binge eating disorder is more common among aesthetic focus sports than endurance sports. Um, with a study finding that actually the incidence of binge eating in male bodybuilders was around 46% in comparison to 12% in male rowers. Um, wow. And I think me, I would think as as you said similar to powerlifting you go through a phase where you're going to be going through diet phases and we know that then restriction is one of the main driver for binge eating behaviors so that makes sense um 
but yeah it is quite quite shocking to hear those kind of stats isn't it that's that's crazy but oh I don't know whether this is like this is a really sad realization but I I am shocked I'm shocked that it's that high but equally like when I think about it I'm not surprised because I think just in you know, I see bodybuilding as like extreme gym culture. And I think just just walking around my gym, the conversations people have, you know, one person's cutting, one person's bulking for no other reason. Other, you know, they don't have a sport to be doing it for. They're just doing it because they've heard the terms floating around the gym. Um, and, you know, that sort of um, binge restrict cycle is is so glorified I know so many people that with like during the week they will literally put themselves in such a massive calorie deficit and then the weekend comes around and they're just you know it's they're like a, a kid in a candy shop like it's yeah. consuming everything that they possibly can but don't see that as problematic um but I think because it's, it it's a cheat day <laughs> yeah yeah exactly yeah which is just you know the fact that that has become so normalized is 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 quite scary um yeah. and i think i think that's what scares me as well is the sort of influence that maybe more senior or um more you know experienced people have because you know i know i keep going on about powerlifting um but that's kind of my experience in sport because yeah. i'm not a very sporty person so powerlifting is all i've ever done um but I remember, you know, I just wanted to do it for fun. And my first competition, I was about 0.5 kilos over the weight category. And so the person that was providing me my training plan um, told me to cut weight. So my first competition, I was there cutting weight. And I didn't even question it because everybody was doing it. But nobody, yeah. hardly anybody was bulking up to the next weight category. And I was like, why, why are we all trying to you know, why are we making ourselves weaker? Um, but it was, it was just so normalized. And I think that's the scary thing. You don't actually stop to question the behaviors because if all your teammates are doing it, why would you question yeah. it? Yeah. And when you're so involved and especially if sport is something that's been quite a big part of your life for a long period of time, it, it does just become quite embedded in you. And it's just kind of mm. the ways, I suppose. But yeah, like you said, when you're having to cut weight, that the likelihood is that you're just dropping like water. Um, and, you know, training in a dehydrated state isn't great either. You're not exactly yeah. setting yourself up for performing, which is what sport is about. And mm -hmm. I think that we really lose sight of that. Um, yeah. Like you said, like, why is nobody going for the higher category? Um, it's quite obvious that as, as good as sport is, I think a lot of people, especially who come from an eating disorder background, like we learn foods can really kind of provide us with fuel and really kind of make us feel amazing. And I think sport mm. can sometimes be the, the door into that kind of world for somebody who's coming from that place. But at the same time, I don't think sport is like, what's the words, free or kind of, not affected by diet mm. culture as well um, yeah. and you know that idea that smaller is, is better and like this fear of being heavier or being mm. bigger um, and I think we see that a lot with like the Instagram and Fitspo community that it's almost like um, you know women are expected to nowadays it's, it's kind of on trend to be more toned have more muscle and um, but still at the same time like you shouldn't expect for your weight to go up which is like a bit contradictory yeah. because you know 
women are trying to put on muscle, but they don't want their weight to go up. So yeah. it's, um, it's it just I think it just shows how deep rooted um, these fears and like you know weight. And I think with sport, there's naturally an obsession on numbers. Um, mm-hmm. And you might have experienced it when you were powerlifting. Like it might be how much you weighed or what you're eating, but it, it was probably the numbers you were lifting. And there was probably yeah. a certain number in your head that was deemed as successful and deemed as failure. So it yeah. it really kind of promotes that obsession with numbers again, which will then kind of impact your your life outside of being an athlete. And I always say this to clients: you are a human. <laughs> you know, you show up for training, but you still have bills to pay like every other human you still have physical biological needs like every other human yeah. um and that's yeah not something to forget <laughs> yeah and I think this the whole like focus on numbers um actually really translates I don't want to say well as in like it's a good thing but it just translates so easily into an eating disorder um you know I think the, the the example that I always think about is, you know, with, let's say, anorexia, there might be a number on the scale that you want to see. But by the time you've got to that number, there's already enough. a new number in <laughs> mind. Yeah, you don't you don't say, oh, you know, we got there. Yay. Well done. Um, That's great. It's all, it's well, you're not at that next number. And that was exactly what I experienced in powerlifting. You know, I wanted to hit a 130 deadlift, but by the time I got to 130, I was already aiming for 140. And then by the time I got to 140, I was aiming for 150. And, um, that was never seen as a problem because because you know you have that like we were talking about earlier the those perfectionistic those goals driven characteristics you know really striving to be the best you can be which is brilliant but i think having those characteristics yes amazing and i'm very grateful because it's made me the determined person i am but actually being able to pause and acknowledge oh my god you just you just got that that's amazing obviously not with weight loss (laughs) just like to say that um but in your sport or whether that's at work or in academia or anything that you're doing being able to actually acknowledge that you've achieved it rather than just like okay what's the next one yeah and that is such a big problem I think with eating disorders and I say this as a recovering perfectionist (laughs) that you I think when you are so perfectionistic and have such high standards of yourself there's two ways we can go about it one you might never reach that and then it's just constant reinforcement and validation that you're failing and when the reality is you aren't if you kind of zoom out you're probably doing amazing and achieving so many other things but it's not as high as the bar you've set yourself but then the other element is like you said you actually do achieve that but because you're so focused on the next level you don't stop to celebrate that and it's like this never ending kind of trying to seek this this thing that doesn't actually exist and we really do have to actually sometimes stop and pause and like you said celebrate those big achievements even though you you don't you don't see that they are like oh my god I've just you know hit this number that's amazing can I just pause and kind of be in this moment and embrace that rather than constantly chasing the next Mm. the next thing so that does make you in one way you know it is beneficial to have those kind of personality traits in some things but I think when you're constantly chasing something and like we spoke about that earlier as well, there's like that risk of burnout and just not actually being happy, not actually being satisfied. Um, And you're constantly thinking when I get to this, especially with anorexia, when I hit this number, 
I'll be happy. You never will. Mm. And until you kind of come to that realization, you will keep chasing it. Yeah. Yeah. I actually had this conversation with a friend of mine the other day who um, I was talking about how I constantly, I feel like I'm chasing the dragon in terms of like, whenever I set myself a goal and I never actually acknowledge that I've reached the goal, but sometimes with particular things I over celebrate. Um, so, you know, like birthdays or getting a new job or something like that. It's like the biggest, amazing, most amazing thing. <clears throat> and it, but it never quite feels good enough because the expectation I have from achieving that is, is, you know, it's not, it, it never feels as good. And she was saying that what she advises her clients is, to kind of mess it up a little bit. So sometimes when you do something really good, yeah, go out and celebrate, you know, get yourself a glass of Prosecco or buy yourself a box of chocolates or, you know, have a party with your friends. But then also if you do something, kind of just acknowledge that you did it and and move on and kind of not giving yourself that sort of high every time um, of mm. like, oh my God, that was amazing. At, you know sometimes just being like yeah that was cool that I did that well done me and then moving on with your life actually over time helps you to appreciate achieving the goal even more because you're not expecting like groundbreaking changes to happen from it you're just like that was really cool that I did that and I'm really proud of myself and now I'm going to carry on that's such a nice way to look at that I really like that mm -hmm. um but I do think and sometimes I'll get clients to keep like a bit of a milestone chart mm -hmm. and like like you said like celebrate those small wins because yeah those small wins do actually add up and a lot of the time they are what actually determine then the bigger wins and the bigger mm. successes so acknowledging those but then like you said yeah not being so caught up with it and and actually giving yourself I think credit overall that you can do these things and you don't have to always celebrate these small things and um, you can still you know give yourself that credit even when you're maybe not going in the, the direction that you want to mm. be going and that whole kind of concept of self-compassion is it's very important there as well within eating disorders and within that kind of perfectionistic um traits yeah for sure yeah definitely definitely um and just before we finish up one thing that I kind of wanted to touch on with you um that we kind of haven't got to yet but is um, a big consequence of um under eating and kind of over performing I guess that I don't think is massively spoken about, but definitely should be, which is kind of why I want to um, change the topic to it, is the female athlete triad, triad and low energy availability. Um, so I wondered if you could explain to us what they are and maybe how, how they can present in athletes. Yeah, so the female athlete triad illustrates the relationship between low energy availability, hormonal changes and decreased bone density. But the concept has kind of evolved in the last couple of decades. And we now acknowledge that males actually suffer from low energy availability too. And before I go any further, I really want to mention that men tend to have a higher threshold for low energy availability. So this actually means that when men start to experience the symptoms of low energy availability, it's quite severe at that point. Mm -hmm. So I think that in itself, although, as you said, like LEA is not, not spoken about enough for low energy availability, um, it's also not spoken about enough in men. Yeah. <laughs> and men actually do struggle, like experience it. And I, I don't know whether that's because we commonly associate LEA with 
period loss and obviously men don't mm. have a period so there's no kind of signpost for that but it is hopefully I mean I hope that it is starting to be spoken about more and we recognize it a bit more um but as you said you know LEA does have a lot of consequences both health-wise and physically and psychologically but also on performance and the sad reality is that this is when coaches start to get concerned for and their athletes and even athletes start to to get concerned themselves as well and I mean I completely understand that the loss of a period is you know quite great in some cases because it's not this inconvenient thing especially when you're active and maybe those kind of hormonal changes do influence your your training and I think this is why the education is so important because Mm. there's nothing glamorous about losing your periods um you know and it's not just your period and I think a lot of there's this misconception that I'm not planning to have babies anytime soon like your period is just kind of for your fertility but actually you know bone density decreases by about 2.5 percent every single year that you don't have a period cardiovascular system is impacted I I often explain, so I've, I've realized I've not actually explained what LEA is. So before we dive in any further, um, LEA is essentially, you know, caused by imbalance in energy. And that's either created by a high energy output or a decreased energy intake. But we do often see that actually underfeeling and overtraining go hand in hand. And energy availability refers to the amount of energy that the body has remaining for biological functions when the energy for training or activity has been covered because this is what the body will naturally always prioritize. So low energy availability or LEA describes the state where your body doesn't actually have enough fuel left over from using it for, for exercise or training to support the normal biological functions that we need. So in very simple terms, energy expenditure is exceeding the how much energy we're taking in. And so I think falling into LEA can be unintentional where an athlete simply underestimates the amount of energy that they need um, for their training as well as their day-to-day functions. Or maybe we get too caught up on our sports performance nutrition and forget that actually as a human, we still need more. We still need energy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we still need certain nutrients. Um, but it can also be intentional. Um, and usually that's when it's related to maybe the aims of changing your body composition or, or linked with an eating disorder. Um, and I often use the analogy that low energy availability is like low power mode on your phone. And, um, mm. you know, your phone goes into a state where it's trying to conserve as much power for the basic functions, like keeping it on for an emergency. Mm. Um, and it kind of stops all of the background stuff. And I often explain our, our body is like this combination of, of systems. We've got our immune system, our reproductive system, cardiovascular system, thermoregulation system. And basically these all start to become downregulated because the body these all cost energy to run and the body doesn't have enough to to keep them going it's like thinking about you know your budget if you realize your your income's going to be cut you're going to reevaluate what you're spending money on and obviously your mortgage or your rent or your bills and your your food is going to be your priorities and maybe going to the cinema twice a week or the coffees yeah. you buy yourself throughout the week or going on holidays that's not considered essential so you're mm-hmm. going to kind of cut them and prioritize making sure you have enough money to to cover these essential things and that's really what's happening with your body all of these other ones get down regulated and that just can cause a whole host of of 
complex things that happen within our body and um, you know it, it results in a reduced production of hormones which then can lead to loss of periods and sex drive impacting fertility in both men and women but then also impacting our bone health again in both men and women lea will also influence our sleep our immunity feeling cold all the time and obviously feeling low in energy as well but then there's the impacts on our psychological health too um, brain fog, impaired cognitive function, um, they're all common features of LEA, um, and low mood and increased anxiety is also often observed within studies as well. So, so many consequences of LEA. It's not just, it's not just like, I don't have a period or I'm feeling low, I'm feeling tired and energy. We, we don't actually think what is actually, oh, what else is going on inside of us? Um, and as I said, it's, it's normally when the performance starts to dip that coaches and athletes kind of think oh shoot like what's going on here and that's often when I'll start seeing a client and they'll be saying you know my performance has dropped and they're not really concerned about the fact that we haven't had a period in five months mm. <laughs> um or been alarmed by that so I think there's a lot of kind of education that needs to happen there for sure and really yeah really again going back to it being so hard to identify between the symptoms of disordered eating and actually just being committed to your to your sport it's it's so hard to identify again yeah I think what you've just said there about like being the concern coming when maybe performance goes as opposed mm -hmm. to the lack of a period or whatever it kind of just demonstrates how someone could be just seen as a machine to kind of mm -hmm perform rather than actually thinking about them as as a human um but I'm just really appreciative for you sharing all of the sort of things that can be impacted because I very much am a person that floats along thinks everything's fine you know it's all good I'm I'm I'm, I'm surviving it's great um and actually I think it was the bone density one um every what did you say it was every year you lose two and a half so around 2.5 percent of your bone density yeah and the the thing with bone density is it it peaks for women i i really honestly don't know the answer because i feel like there's a lot of mixed studies i feel like it's in your late mid to late 20s that yeah. your bone density kind of peaks and there's no there's actually like no improving that from that point so you can maintain it <laughs> but if your bone density is you know decreasing consistently up until that point you're, you're going to have a, a low point and that's going to increase your risk of osteoporosis and osteopenia and I think people associate those diseases with being elderly <laughs> but um the the sad reality is there is no age on that you know I have, I have clients in their 20s who have osteoporosis so it's um yeah I think like you said there's not enough kind of talk on the impacts and the lifelong impacts because yes you can improve definitely you can reverse a lot of the effects of LEA but that bone density one is, is unfortunately there's a certain point that we can't rectify much yeah yeah sorry I've gone quiet but that's really kind of <laughs> shook me um I think mm -hmm. it's very easy to like you say just think oh that that only happens to old people um and not think about how your actions right now actually impact what's going to happen in the future um but i think sometimes we need to hear the reality of things because it can be 
so easy to be so engulfed into the eating disorder or disordered eating and just think yeah everything you know I'm, I'm, I'm fine um when actually maybe it's not um you know thinking yeah. about the long-term future but like you said when when you are in the middle of an eating disorder it's hard to see anything past that you mm-hmm. know it is hard to imagine your life in 20 years time and the long-term effects of that and like I don't think that that's on the individual that is very much unfortunately that the way an eating disorder works we, we really struggle to see outside of it and past it and um, and so you know when you're in the middle of an eating disorder you're not you're not concerned about what's mm-hmm. going to happen tomorrow you're, you're you're more worried about other things so yeah. it's um it's understandable that that is hard to see and I think this is why that that message needs to just be consistently and repeatedly mm-hmm you know put out there for people to to recognize maybe before they slip into that because I think like even when we think about dieters and people who diet and um, nobody really thinks about the consequences of constant yo-yo dieting and how mm. that over periods of time impacts your your heart health like I think it's just partially quite normal for us not to mm. think of them because we don't talk about them enough and until yeah. we start talking about the consequences I think that is when then when we start to realize and kind of evaluate our behaviors before we take them because if we just look at the glorified results of dieting or of an eating disorder it is very easy to forget about actually the negatives yeah I think you're completely right and I always find it really funny actually in that I always think that my eating disorder takes me from living in the moment um, and like embracing the moment and stuff but in a in a really weird way it actually makes you live in the moment but kind of like for the wrong things but it's like mm. everything is so fine now and you don't think about the consequences of your actions right now on the future um but almost in like a, a maladaptive way because it's like well this one thing that I'm doing right now you know it's just a small thing it's not going to impact it but actually it has the biggest impact um but but you're not living in the moment in terms of like enjoying yourself and being spontaneous and just like letting things happen and being out of control I think you overthink the consequences for the eating disorder and, mm-hmm. and not the consequences for you because yeah. like you said that identity becomes a little bit difficult to mm. actually kind of you know identify and I think that yeah it's 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 very normal like you said you're in the moment for the wrong reasons you're thinking about the wrong reasons and this is what I mean you know when you're talking to somebody in the depths of an eating disorder about their bone health and about their fertility and about you know their heart health they're kind of sitting there going I'm, I'm really just kind of maybe still ruminating on, on what I ate yesterday or mm. you know this is not relevant to me right now um and yeah that is completely is understandable and I think that just really highlights how much an eating disorder does take yeah Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Elle, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. And um, a lot of what you said has really hit home for me today. So I'm just really grateful for for having this chat with you. Um, where can people find you for more information or if they want to speak about and um, maybe getting some support themselves? Amazing. Thank you so much for having me, Han. Um, so my Instagram handle, it's kind of the only social media I'm on, is L. Kelly Nutrition. Um, and my website is eknutrition.com. Um, they're probably the two best places to, to find me at. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. And uh, yeah, stay warm. No snow. <laughs>
Yeah, no snow. Please, no stay away. (laughs) (laughs) If you enjoyed listening today, you won't want to miss next week's episode, so be sure to subscribe. Eating disorders are crippling illnesses, but with the right support, they can be recovered from. We really hope you enjoyed this episode, but if you require more support right now, please look into charities such as First Steps and Beat for support or talk to someone you trust.